All right, Matthew chapter 22 today, as we continue on through the gospel of Matthew. And just to keep in context what's going on here in chapter 22, uh, if you remember in chapter 21, Jesus returned to the temple. He's already overturned tables. He's already driven out the money changers. And he left that day, came back the next day, and this is still that day where he's there in the temple. He began teaching. The scribes and the religious leaders came to confront him. And, uh, and we looked at that last week when, again, they're trying to trap him in his words. And so they, they ask him, uh, where do you have the authority to do these things? And who gave you that authority? Well, if he had answered with the absolute truth and said, I have the authority because I'm the Messiah. And that authority was given to me by my Father in heaven. That, they could have went blasphemy, right? And they could have had him arrested and even by Jewish law had him stoned. But Jesus, knowing what they were doing, said, okay, if I, I'll ask you a question. And if you answer me honestly, then I'll answer you honestly. Where did John the Baptist's authority come from? And I'm, I'm summarizing what he, was, what he was saying. Was it from heaven, or was John just some crazy guy out by the river, right? Well, they knew their answer, but being the politicians of their day, they knew that they couldn't get trapped in their words. And so they needed to have a very you know, easy answer that they could escape, and so they're like, oh, well, we don't know. And Jesus says, well, then I'm not going to answer you honestly either. And, and he goes on to show uh, by speaking parables to them. And someone asked me last week, what's the reason that Jesus taught with parables so often? We've talked about this in the past, but it's good to remember that one of the main things that Jesus was able to do by parables is give everybody what they came looking for. If you came to a crowd where Jesus was teaching, wanting the deep truth of God you would be able to hear it in the parable. But to the religious leaders that didn't want really anything, guess what? They would hear nothing. And so the truth is, is not hidden, but it is, you have to work just a little bit more for it. And so Jesus is teaching by parables again in the temple. And though he's addressing the relig religious leaders and very focused on them, we need to keep in mind that there is a crowd around them. And so the crowd is hearing everything Jesus has to say. And they're extracting that truth from these parables, even though the religious leaders are not. Uh, good, it's a good reminder to me. Because very often I get focused on the person that maybe wants to debate or they want to argue or you know, they just want to you know, cause problems. And, and my tendency is to go, no, I'm not going to do that. But in every case that I can remember... There were always people to the side who were listening. And, and sometimes having that conflict, having that debate, though it may not do any good for the person that you're, you're debating with, the people around you have the exact same questions. And they're able to hear it and receive it. And that's what's going on here, is that uh, Jesus spoke two parables. He spoke one of uh, two sons that were sent out by their father into the vineyard to work. And he told the parable of a man who owned a vineyard or planted a vineyard and, and did all the work and set 
the press and the tower and, and everything and then leased it out to these vine dressers who were evil men. And these two parables, again, are directed at the religious leaders. And through them, he tells them that they are saying the right words, but not doing the work. And that they have taken advantage of their place of authority. All the work that God has laid down for them, all of the things that he's prepared for them to do, they have completely rejected. And that they are only serving themselves. And so keep in mind, they didn't know all of that. They didn't understand where they fit in these parables or if they fit at all until the very end. And when they realized it, they were furious. They wanted to seize Jesus and have him arrested, but they couldn't or they wouldn't because they feared the crowd. Now, chapter 22 picks up right there. So sometimes those chapter breaks make us think that time has gone by. No time's gone by. The religious leaders are still standing. They're red in the face. They want to arrest Jesus. And he continues to teach in parables. <laughs> and, and I just love how the Lord just, again, has, has taken his house back. Right? He's in the temple that they have corrupted, that they have done all these things. And he's told them, my house shall be called the house of prayer. And so now he stands in his house teaching his word to those who want to hear it and even those who don't want to hear it. Um, and I think there's some great things for us here in chapter 22. Is he's, he continues to teach in parables, uh, or this next parable that we'll look at um, causes us to ask some really good questions about where we are concerning salvation, concerning about our walk with the Lord, where we fit or where we think we fit, uh, even within the kingdom of God and living today in his grace. So let's pray one more time and we'll get into chapter 22. God, we thank you for the power that is in your word. And we pray that now as we, we open it up and we begin to read it, we pray that you would plant it deep in our hearts, that it would change us, that Holy Spirit, you would show us how these things apply to us personally and individually and to us as a church. Have your way in this place and in each one of us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So we're only going to go halfway through the chapter today. Uh, but starting in verse 1 of chapter 22, it says, And Jesus answered and spoke to them again by parables and said, The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son. And he sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding. And they were not willing to come. And again, he sent out other servants saying, Tell those who were invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fatted calf are killed, and all things are ready. Come to the wedding. But they made light of it, and they went their way, one to his own farm, another to his business, and the rest seized the servants, treated them spitefully, and killed them. But when the king heard about it, he was furious and sent out his army. His armies destroyed those murderers and burned their cities. Now, just like the other parables, Jesus uses things that speak very clearly and are clearly understood by everybody there, uh, and is still giving very strong correction to the religious leaders, using things that are important to them, that they held to be dear, and, and a wedding is one of those. Now, a wedding is important in our day, and we, we understand that. When somebody we care about is getting married, we want to make sure it's a, a special day for them, right? We, uh, 
It's so funny. Candy and I have so many crazy wedding stories because <laughs> the weddings that we've been involved in over the years and crazy parents and crazy brides and crazy grooms and all kinds of stuff. But, but everyone, you know, in, in general, the idea is we want this to be a day that's going to be remembered. We want it to be a special day. And, but even more so, in that day and in the, the Hebrew culture, the wedding was the pinnacle of someone's life as far as other people being involved and making it a special day. Not necessarily the pinnacle emotionally, but as an event in your life, your wedding day was it. And there was a huge amount of, of beauty and romance and, and the way that it, they did it very often, not every time, but very often in the Hebrew culture is just absolutely gorgeous. And the Lord points to it in a, in a couple of different ways. One of them being referring to it as the way that he's going to come for us. And so I thought it'd be cool to kind of just look at some of the things that were part of the wedding. Now, when a, when a husband and wife or when a man and woman were engaged is what we call it, when they were betrothed to one another, that, that period lasted about a year. And during that time, the husband ideally would be building a house for them. Now, sometimes he couldn't afford it, and so he would build an addition onto his father's house or his parents' house, but it was still their place. It was like this was going to be their start. And, and as the year was coming to a close of their betrothal, hopefully that, their, their place was also getting wrapped up, and everyone knew that the day was drawing near. Now, the thing about it, one of the things I just find so romantic about the way they did it is the bride did not know when the wedding was. She knew it was close. She knew the year was coming to, to an end. She knew that the, their house had been prepared, but she did not know the day. So she had to be ready. She had to be, have everything ready. And, and sure enough, when the day arrived, the groom would begin a procession through town. And people who were invited, and, and sometimes people who weren't invited, would all come out and join that procession. And would kind of wheel its way all through town, as many streets as they had, until finally it stopped at the bride's house, and he would call to her. And then it was on. The wedding ceremony and celebration were on from that point forward. A wedding celebration in the Hebrew culture would last anywhere it could be one day, but usually it was anywhere from three to seven days long. And so you didn't invite the whole town because you had to feed them and you had to make sure there's enough wine for everybody and you had to take care of them. So that when you were invited to a wedding, it was a great honor. You were counted among the closest friends and family of the people getting married, right? It, it was huge. And, and so this invitation, or the way the Lord puts all of this together, again, everyone held weddings and marriage in very, very high regard. Sometimes we can look at the scribes and the Pharisees and religious leaders, and we just picture them as these totally evil people. And, and they, sure, there was a lot of evil there, but when it came to these things, they, were, they held them with great importance. To refuse to go to somebody's wedding was one of the greatest insults you could, you could hurl at a, at a family. Again, this was very rare. If you were invited, it was special. And so to go, no, I'm not interested. I'm not going. It, was, it would not be forgotten ever. And so when Jesus tells us, understand that this is a shocking thing, that they did not go when they were invited. 
And the idea is that they've already been told about it, right? There's been that kind of preliminary invitation that the father, and this is all kind of told from the father's perspective, that he's put everything together. He's made ready. He's put, he's paid for everything. He's made all the arrangements for his son. And he's already told the people that are invited, he wants them there. In other words, saying, when the day arrives, it's going to be about this time, you'll know, and I'll send people to you. And they went, okay. Well, now that day has arrived. And so he sends the messengers out. Go tell everybody, this is the day. Verse 3 says, and they were, were, were not willing to come. Again, people would have gasped. People would have gone, what? what? Who would do that? I mean, just that one person would do it is amazing, but that all of them, it's shocking. And again, it doesn't seem to make any sense at all. Not only is this a great man, we're told he's a king. The king, his son is getting married, and he is putting on the bash of a century. Who would not go to that? Who would not carve out time to go to that party? Yet, they were unwilling. And we're told that this is, I mean, again, this is a huge, huge party. This is the seven-day type feast. This is a joyous, extravagant celebration. Once-in-a-lifetime kind of party. The one that, that people would literally talk about for years and years to come, right? Everything has been prepared. And, it, and it's also important to note, it's not that they wanted to go, but they were unable. It's not that the invitation arrived at an inconvenient time, and they, they desired to, but they simply didn't have the means to go. They had all the means, they had all the ability, they were unwilling to go. And so the king sends out a second invitation to the same people. Again, that's rare. That would never happen. That if you, someone went, no, nah, I can't make it, done. You just burned your bridges with that family. You're never getting invited to anything again. And instead, again, the king graciously invites all of the exact same people again. Verse 4 says, tell those who were invited. See, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fatted calf, excuse me, fatted cattle are killed, and all things are ready. Come to the wedding. He's pleading with them at this point. Maybe you didn't understand. Today's the day of it. it it's already, the food is on the table. Come to the wedding. It's such a great picture. The good things that God has prepared are waiting for us. And we miss them. Now, it's, it's also an amazing picture. And, and as Jesus is telling this, this is, the, I think, the more relevant picture for the people who are hearing it of the day. This is a picture of the history of Israel. That through the prophets, he has invited them time and time again. Come to my table. I have good things waiting for all of you. I have salvation. I have forgiveness. I have blessing. It is waiting for you. And time and time again, they were unwilling. And I wish we could say it was just Israel, but it's also a pretty amazing picture of us as well. It's, it's us before we knew Christ. It's us as we share Christ with other people, right, and their response. And, and it's even us being saved, getting distracted with life, 
The Lord's like, look at all that I have for you. I'm like, yeah, 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 I'll get to that. Make light of it. An amazing invitation is given. And this isn't like just some boring meeting that they're invited to. I hate meetings. I, <laughs> there, there's different groups and people that I'm, I'm connected with, and they're like, hey, we've got this meeting we're having. I'm like, tell me how that goes. Now, I hate them. I hate sitting around just talking about finances or, or stuff or you know, going over. Going over the minutes of the last boring meeting is probably the worst boring thing that could ever happen. Oh, it's so bad, you know? And they're like, hey, before we get into today's boring stuff, let's talk about all the boring stuff that we didn't care about last time we met. <laughs> if it was one of those, you could understand why people would go, oh, I'm busy. <laughs> I cannot make it. I got so much going on. That is not the case. They're not in- invited to some boring meeting. This is an extravagant, joyous celebration. This is a once-in-a-lifetime event from a very generous king. Now, there's something, it's funny, I, I wrestle back and forth to try and understand this because I think we want to believe that if, if you show just a huge amount of love and generosity and kindness to someone, they will respond likewise. Right? No. <laughs> Sometimes that's the case, and certainly that's what we hope for. But it doesn't take too far back for us to look to realize that that is not usually the case. And this is what one of the things the parable shows. Here's this great generosity and kindness that the king is attempting to pour out on people, that he's prepared everything. Nothing's required of them. He's not saying, it's a potluck, bring food. You know, he's not saying anything. It's all done. You just need to show up. And rather than responding, again, verse 5 says, and they made light of it and went their ways, one to his own farm, another to his own business. The response to the love and generosity of the king is indifference. That's great. No, it's good. It's nice if you invite me. But, you know, I just I got stuff going on. I'm busy. I got important things to do. You know, I, I frankly, I don't have time to honor you or your son. I, I'm more important than that. And while some respond with indifference, others respond with hate. The rest sees that his servants treated them spitefully and killed them. Again, A great picture of the history of Israel. And a great picture of the history of the church. In the Old Testament, the the prophets were the messengers of the invitation. They were the ones sent out to say, come to the dinner. In the New Testament, it's every believer sharing the gospel everywhere they go, saying, come to the dinner. Come to the table. You are invited. And some respond with indifference. Oh, hey, man, I'm glad that works for you. Good. I'm glad, glad, glad you got a thing but I got my own thing. I'm more important than that. I don't, I don't need forgiveness from anything. I'm fine. And others respond with hate. Don't tell me I need salvation. Don't tell me that Jesus is the only way. And so, I mean, in, in this little parable here, Jesus is summing up a huge amount of 
Jewish and church history and the response of the good news through both. And, and it could seem, you know, if you look at church history, it could almost seem like sometimes maybe the king's not paying attention. You, you see people get arrested and you, you hear of these things of Christians being still abducted and murdered. And, and we like to think that never happens, but unfortunately it happens all the time. And, and people dying for the gospel and being persecuted for the gospel. And we're like, Lord, are you paying attention? Now, of course, in Scripture, it's very clear that he is. And it's very clear in this parable as well that it isn't he isn't paying attention. He is absolutely aware of what's going on. The king fully knows what's happening, and he's furious about it. But he is also a very patient king. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9 says, Our Lord is not slack concerning his promises, as some count slackness. But he is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He has held that invitation out for thousands of years, but he will not hold it out forever. And just in the, as it is in the parable, that the king is aware of it, furious about it, in fact, goes to war over what has been done. A day of war is coming. And, and really, this is prophetic, what Jesus is talking about. And it's, uh, prophetic in, in, it's prophetic in one way, but it refers to two different times. And that's one of the things that some people have tr- trouble understanding when it comes to prophecy. That if you look at prophecy, there's a lot of examples, but say something that King David spoke. Well, it had meaning in the day he spoke it. But it also pointed forward to something that would happen later on. Say maybe it pointed to something that would happen in the, in the life of Jesus. But it will also have its greatest fulfillment later at Jesus' return. Right? So there's three different times that one prophecy might apply. Okay? And as Jesus speaks this one, this actually speaks to two different times. Uh, he's mentioned a couple of times, and again, it lines up with this parable perfectly, that because of their rejection, Israel is going to face judgment. That it's coming. And it's, it's, it's directly connected to the rejection of Jesus. Uh, and sure enough, in 70 AD, Jerusalem was leveled. Not one building left on standing. Israel was completely dispersed, if not enslaved. But it also points further ahead to the tribulation. The the pinnacle of man's response to Jesus Christ will happen in the tribulation. Everyone will have to make a choice. And it will be a time of war. We even see Jesus riding in on a white horse, which was a symbol of war in Israel. Everyone will have to either stand with Jesus or reject him. And it is a time of war and final judgment. So that statement that he's talking about there, man, the king sees what's going on. He's aware of it. He's furious about it. But he's also patient enough to wait that everyone 
who will come in is invited. Now, verse 8. And then he said to his servants, The wedding is ready, and those who were invited are not worthy. Therefore, go to the highways, and as many as you find, invite to the wedding. And so those servants went out into the highways and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came to see the guests, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. And so he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. And the king said to his servants, bind him hand and foot, take him away and cast him into outer darkness where there, is, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Now there's this great promise here with this stark warning at the end of it. But... Uh, the first group who was invited, he says they were unworthy. And it's interesting because whether they were or not, they saw themselves as being important. Now, that doesn't mean they were necessarily invited because they were important, but they saw themselves as being important. I've got other things to do. They thought they were worthy of the invitation. In fact, they thought they were above the invitation. I just don't have time for you. It would be beneath me to, to accept that invitation. They thought of themselves as being important or their accomplishments were more important or whatever it was. But the king says it, and when he says that they are unworthy, it is absolutely true. But the wedding's still going to happen. See, I mean, nothing we do as in, an individual or as the human race will detour God from what he has in mind. The wedding is still taking place. And so he sends his servants out everywhere. And that's the idea of the highways. It doesn't just mean like, you know, we think of the abandoned road. The idea is like, and everywhere that road connects, go into every town, every city, every, everywhere, and find everyone. And they do. And I, and I like that it says that they found both bad and good. Um, it's a very generic term that's used there. Very, it encompasses a lot. It doesn't just mean bad and good morally. That's part of it. It also means the lame and the sick and the healthy and the well. It means the low and the high. It means everything in between. It's absolutely everyone, no one of any origin, place, level will ever be rejected. Find everybody and bring them in. No one is excluded. Again, what a perfect, perfect picture. Those that saw themselves as being worthy were not. And those who were not worthy are made worthy. And that's God's grace. That's us. We're the ones that were on the highways. We're the lost and the lowest and the least. And he's like, go get those people. And we're like, yes! <laughs> I get to go to the wedding feast? Fantastic, you know? And, and we understand it's by grace. It's not because we're bringing something great to the table. It's not because we're bringing anything to the wedding, making ourselves somehow worthy. We know our unworthiness. 
And we are only there by God's grace. Now, in verse 12, there's this weird side note of this guy that somehow comes in and he goes, how'd you get in here? <laughs> right? Now, when I first got saved, this terrified me. I mean, not knowing anything about the Bible, I remember hearing this being read and going, and in my head, I'm picturing the wedding supper of the Lamb, right? And we're all in heaven. And all of a sudden, the Lord stops and goes, Jack, how did you get in here? And I'm like, oh, you know, I don't know. But that's not, not the picture that Jesus is, is picturing or giving to us here. First, he gives us this incredible picture of grace that everybody is brought in, evil and good, the low and the high, the good and the bad, everyone's brought in. But this warning, and that's what this is, is a warning of this person brought in, and it's really a picture of somebody that loves all of the benefits that the king offers, but does not love the king at all. See, when you would go to an extravagant wedding feast like this, the king or the person who put it all on would give you your wedding garment. He, they clothed you, right? That everyone wore the same thing. It was like, you know, it wasn't like matching T-shirts or anything like we think of it. But it, was, it, was this, it was like a gift. It was like, look, thank you for coming here. This beautiful garment is yours, and you're a part of this family. Right? This is, again, very symbolic. And so here is a person that is not clothed in grace. They're not clothed in the righteousness of Christ. They love the things of churchianity. They love the benefits of the community of church and of being around other Christians. And they can talk the talk and they can look like they're walking the walk. But when it comes down to it, it's all an act. This is, this is the one where the seed has been planted in the shallow dirt. This is the one that has sat on the very threshold of salvation, but never crossed over. And again, the warning is, is it, it doesn't matter what we look on the outside, because to us, this person looks like the part of the family. But the Lord knows we must not be dressed in our own works. We must not be dressed in our own righteousness. Because to do so means that we cannot have a place at this table. Only those clothed in grace, clothed in his righteousness and his work. And that's it. Now, verse 15 says, And then the Pharisees, went and plotted how they might entangle him in his talk. And they sent to him their disciples with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God in truth, nor do you care about anyone, for you do not regard the, peop the person of men. Tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, why do you test me, you hypocrites? Show me, a show me the tax money. And so they brought to him a denarius. And he said to them, whose, excuse me, whose image and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. 
And he said to them, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, to God the things that are God's. And when they heard these, th- heard these words, they marveled, and they left him and went their way. Now again, they are attempting to trap Jesus in his words. And we're even told that they're plotting how they might entangle him in his words. Um, and then we've seen him try this before. You know, it hasn't worked yet. But hey, points for trying the same thing over and over and over. And I, and I love how Jesus is just like, bring it. You know, I mean, again, he's not running from this. He's not trying to avoid these questions or, or whatever. Um, and, and they were trying to hit him with these controversial issues each time. That door just will not stop slamming. Maybe, maybe it's shut now. They're trying to stop Jesus from speaking the truth by entangling him in, in these things. So they use controversial issues. And then and now, taxes are a big one, right? Nobody likes paying taxes. Never have I ever met anybody at any level of success that goes, I just love paying my part of taxes, right? <laughs> Nobody. And it, it meant even more, it wasn't just an inconvenience, it wasn't a frustration about money. It was a big topic in Israel because these were taxes to the Roman government that was oppressing them, that had conquered them. And Rome would just simply go, guess what? We doubled your taxes today. Too bad. And and they had to deal with it. And so understand that if Jesus says, yes, you should pay taxes, then it tells everybody that he's for Rome and against Israel. And if he says, no, don't pay taxes, then it means he's against Rome, and they could literally have him crucified for that. Rome was pretty serious about paying taxes, right? We get upset about a fine. We got it pretty good in comparison. Um, And especially if there are witnesses there to hear him say, don't pay taxes to Rome, right? This is why the Herodians are there. And so, you know, again, we've seen these groups of people uh, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, now the Herodians. The Herodians were people who were uh, very caught up in Greek and Roman culture. They were for Rome most of the time. And it's funny because all of those groups hated each other. They hated the Herodians maybe more than they hated one another because the Herodians were on the side of Rome a lot of times. But this time they bring them in going, hey, if these guys hear Jesus say don't pay taxes then they're the perfect witness to then go to Rome with that accusation. I also think it's funny that the religious leaders this time don't go themselves. It says they sent their disciples. So they send send the young boys. You know, they send these guys that are like all zeal and no intelligence. And they're like, yeah, go handle Jesus. (laughs) Again, did not work out very well. And the fact that all those groups, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Herodians, the Sadducees, all these... Jesus is their common enemy. Jesus is is what's brought them together because he's exposing their garbage, their nonsense, and how they're taking advantage of people and how they're misrepresenting God. Jesus is undoing all the stuff that they've been working for for generations, and so they're furious about it. They're losing their place of power, and they are out to kill him. Now, I... I think it's neat because Jesus knows what's going on. He, he could have just answered their question. 
But instead, again, the crowd around is listening to all this. And so they come here and they give him like the really flowery compliments. Hey, Lord, we know you're the best and you only speak truth and you're such a great guy. And, and they, we just know that you can give us a straight answer about this. Give us a straight yes or no answer about should we pay taxes? And Jesus calls them out and goes, you're hypocrites. You're trying to trap me. You know, and he didn't have to do that. He could have just went, hey, somebody give me a coin. But instead, he makes a point of, of pointing out their motives to the crowd, letting the crowd see what these guys are all about. And I love that, that Jesus didn't hesitate to expose who they were. And then he takes a coin. Whose face is this? Whose name is this? Oh, it's Caesar's. Render, therefore, to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. This wasn't just the answer to this tricky question. And I think sometimes we can roll over the top of that and go, wow, that's a great answer. And, and you, I do picture the religious leaders coming outside the crowd. They send the young guys in there to handle, and they're, they're watching from a distance. Oh, we got him now. We got him. How can he can't get out of this? We got him. Maybe we don't got him, right? Just Jesus, boom, he's done with it. But if we only see it as a brilliant answer to a tricky question, we're missing the greater point. The things that belong to the world, let the world have them. Whether that's because we get caught up in taxes, we get caught up in money, and we're like, man, this is time I've invested. This is what I'm worth. This is what I'm, you know, my future and all those things. And certainly we are called to be good stewards of those things. But when it comes right down to it, let the world have what the world needs. And instead, we need to trust God that he will provide what, what we need. And because we belong to him, let him have all of us. What's, what belongs to God? Everything. But especially us. We are his children. And so when we hold back our lives or part of our lives... We are missing out on, on what's waiting for us. See, these seem like two different events, and they were, but I think they're tied together. Because as we consider the things that God has in store for us, we are invited to his table. We are invited first to salvation, and that's the greatest question any person can ask. Have I received that invitation? Or am I the one who's still trying to sneak into the party by my own works? But even after we've received his invitation, we've got salvation. We know that Jesus is dwelling in our hearts. Are there still those areas that I'm trying to do it in my own strength? And the Lord's going, look, I've prepared the table for you. I have so much blessing and joy extravagantly ready to be poured out upon you. And you are still trying to do it yourself. For those of you that got to meet Dr. Sharon when she was here, uh, she shared a little bit on a Sunday, and then we gave her Monday night. And I don't even know if she's aware of it, but I believe she spoke a word of prophecy over this church. Not the church at large, not everybody, us. And here's basically what she said. She said, I pray for you guys all the time. And she said, and you would be amazed if I could express to you how delighted the Lord is with this church. 
She said, there's only one thing you're lacking. You need to ask for more. You don't ask him for enough. And, and the Holy Spirit in me just leapt that that was the word for us. And I don't mean that, I don't believe it means that we're to ask for more stuff or more things or more money. But more of the things that actually count. I believe that he wants us to ask for more of him. And, and that we're asked that we would have more submission and that he would have more control and that he would reign in even greater power and that he would use this church to a far greater degree than we ever thought possible. But we need to ask for more. He has blessing, extravagant blessing, waiting on the table for us. And it isn't up to us to create it. It's simply up to us to ask. Let's pray. God, we're so grateful that you are a generous father, that you desire to pour out so much blessing upon our lives individually and as a church and in this community and on this island. Jesus, we ask for more. Use us more. Do whatever you want. Do more of what you want than you ever have done before. We are yours. Thank you for the good things you have in store. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.